You are listening to the Accents podcast on WUKY. I'm your host, Katerina Stojkova, and my guests today are poet, publisher, and art critic and curator John Yao and Stuart Horodner, the director of the UK Art Museum in Lexington, Kentucky. Hi, John and Stuart. Welcome to Accents. Oh, welcome. Thank you for Hi, having Katerina. us. The occasion of this conversation is that John Yao is in town for a very special exhibition at the museum. I'll ask Stuart, the mastermind of the exhibit, to introduce it to our listeners. Uh, happy to do that. Uh, so this exhibit looks at, it's called Disguise the Limit, which of course is a play on words. Uh, what might it mean to disguise a limit? But it felt like a, an apt title to an exhibit that brings together over 40 years of John collaborating with different artists. I was explaining this to someone the other day that he, I think in the history of many artists and, and poet collaborators, he probably has collaborated with the widest range of artist practitioners than previous poet collaborators. I mean, everything from very canonical artists to emerging artists to former students. Uh, he says yes a lot to like-minded <laughs> peers and likes to see what happens when, when collaboration can happen. And so the show brings paintings, drawings, prints, artist books, uh, every way that a poem might be able to appear in fragment form or as a complete work in dialogue with a really wide range of artists, abstract artists, representational artists, um, and it's an abundance of riches, so we're very happy to show it here at the museum. And arranging the artwork and the books, that takes vision, concepts, designing the experience, how did you do it? Well, I should just say, uh, I've known John uh, professionally since 1992, until Relatively recently, only a few years ago, I had no idea the scope of his collaborative work. So part of it was just trying to get our arms around how much he had done, where these works were, how we could get them, um, how many things are works for the wall, how many things need to be in cases and such. And so once we made the final checklist, it's not a comprehensive everything he's ever done, but it's a really good start <laughs> to try to see what he's been up to. And um, he's done works with sometimes an artist on one project, some people he's worked with for multiple projects. So we just tried to have the exhibit represent in the appropriate manner all of, the, all of that. And uh, I'm very happy with how the work looks in the gallery, you know, just spatially and experientially. Uh, it's, it's, um, it just feels really made physically engaged and yeah, it's know. another world you enter another world what did it feel like for you john it was a big surprise i mean i knew that i had done all of these things but i never saw them all together i never saw often i well, say i did 26 paintings with archie ran his studio was too small so i never even saw them all together i don't think i don't know if he ever did and so Many of the works I saw, it's the first time I've ever seen them all together the way they should be displayed. Yeah. Um, and then with the Peter Saul, 
we did it in you know, a few hours in his in a in a in his in his university, and I never saw it all together either. We just did it, and it was printed, and that was that. So for me, it was just wonderful to see that I had all these things, <laughs> and it was almost like. Who did all these things? And then I realized, well, it's me that did it, but it's still that kind of wonderful surprise. So that was great. Most people do see the value of collaboration, but few actually participate in it. Why do you think that is? Is it fear of the loss of control? or? I would think it's partly the fear of the loss of control. You really... You're not compete. You're competing sort of in a friendly way with somebody. You're also trying to compliment them as a worker. You know, in the work, you're trying to understand who they are and what they might respond to, and you're trying to respond to them. So it's a kind of dialogue, conversation. That it's it's not about you in the end. It's about what can we make, and how can we make it, and can we get? I mean. The, I always remember, so Robert Creeley had an exhibit of his collaborations years ago, and I wrote the essay for the exhibition, uh, for the catalog, and he said it's to get out of the habits of your own thinking. And we all have our habits of thinking, we like them, they become the way we work, and he was saying he wanted to get out of them, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting challenge, you know. So that's the other thing I think is, I think I get to I write things that I don't, I don't think I would have written in other circumstances. And I think that's helped me also become a different poet. Yeah, I'm sure. How do you choose your collaborators or do they choose you or does it, is it it's, some happy chance or all of the above? Or? It's kind of all of the above. So the first person I ever collaborated with in a serious, long way was Archie Rand, and we were uh, just fooling around. We were in a, in a graduate art crit, and we were just like high school kids passing notes back and forth and making little drawings and, um, and being sarcastic. And then... Um, I said to him after the crit, we were standing in the parking lot. I said, oh, we should really do a serious collaboration. And his first response was, yes, let's do a thousand. And I went, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? And I said, why should we do a thousand? And he said, that way we'll get beyond everything we know. And that was also, yeah, that was a really... That's has stayed with me, the thing of getting beyond what you know how to do into some territory where you don't know what you're doing, but you keep doing something. So that, so that was the first person. Other people have approached me. Sometimes it was a student or with a student once I wanted to make something. Uh, the Genghis Chan private eye door. I'd always thought about this. And, I had, and then I met Enrique, who was a student at Rutgers, and he was an amazing printmaker. I said, let's do something. Do you want to do this? I'll tell you what I want, and then, but you make it, and then you show it to me, and we agree on it. And if you notice, he spells Genghis wrong, and I decided not to correct him. I thought, let's have, let him be really seriously part of this collaboration and 
he invented a new Genghis Chan by spelling it differently than I did. So it was really back and forth with him. Other people, it was somebody said, oh, I would like to work with you and somebody else, a publisher in France, Gervais Jasso. And I said, okay, if they want to do it. And so that's how those happened. So it's happened lots of different ways. And I'm really interested in the chance possibility of working with someone you don't know and seeing what happens. So that that is also an important part of it. So, yeah, all, all different ways. And the focus, as you said, the focus is different. It's not about either one of the collaborators, but... Let's make something. Right. In fact, let's let's make thousands. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Is publishing a collaboration? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You really you're working with the how does the poet want his or her their book to appear? And I try to really satisfy them. I work I talk to them about the cover. I often make the choices but not always, but then I say, what do you think of this? This is the way it's going to look, and so it's the publisher, it's the designer, and it's the poet, and they and I try to work with them so that everybody's happy. The designer's happy with what she, we have this one designer, what she does. The poet is happier, the translator, and me. So it is a collaboration. I think that's very important. It feels like if you accept a book for publication, it, you are accepting an invitation to collaborate. Right, exactly. And the covers of your press are fabulous. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, tell the listeners of Accents about your press. So I started my press in 1999 because there's a lot of poets that I knew that... Um, they, they didn't know how to get their work published or they just didn't, you know, there's a publishing is a complicated, crazy world. And so I said, oh, well, let's start a press. So, you know, with a couple of friends and then I started one. And I basically wanted to publish poets that I knew that weren't trying to get their work published or didn't get published so easily that I believed in. And then I know a lot of artists, so I would ask artists if they would want to contribute something for the cover, and then I would work it out with the artists, and then I got a designer, and it suddenly started to take off. I did not, I mean, I thought in the beginning, oh, I'll do a few books and that'll be that, but uh, 24 years later, I'm still doing it and trying to do about four books a year. How many have you published altogether? I think about 80 or 90 books altogether. Yeah. These are 80 or 90 books that may not have existed. Right. Yeah? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. What a wonderful service for poetry. Uh, I think, well, poets have to help other poets. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. You know. Um, and all the people that saw, I, when I was young, I liked Sid Corman, who did Origin magazine. I saw all the small press magazines out of New York City, and you know, around, published around St. Mark's. They were done on mimeograph machines. I mean, really, the most do-it-yourself, however you could get it out. And one of the a poet I studied with, uh, Robert Kelly, who was very important to me, talked about how if you publish something, then you get the people who need to read it or want to read it to them quickly. 
And I felt that that was a way to think about poetry, how to just get the work out there so other people could read it. So that's one of the reasons I started the presses because of all these people that I've been influenced by, you know. John Ashbery had small books, and he, you know, and he participated. He contributed to small presses, to small magazines, as much as other big magazines. And I don't think he made a big um, decision only. I'll only publish in the best-known magazines. He was very democratic for well to later in his life. But I and think he that, was a big fan of your work, John yes, Ashbery. Yes, he was. Yes, yeah. he was. He selected you as the winner of which award? Um, oh, I forget what it is. But yeah, in 83, he picked my work. The adjectives I came up with when reading your work are fascinating, delightful, poignant, multifaceted, rich. Stuart, what do you think? More adjectives? Or do you agree with me if you don't have more adjectives? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. The things I was saying to John a few weeks ago, uh, for many years I read his criticism, and I had several of his poetry books, but I felt very comfortable saying that I had read his critical writing in depth from the time I was a young artist till now. Um, I had not done the kind of deep dive into the scope of all of the poetry and my takeaway, as I've said to John and others, is that I didn't, I knew that the poetry was um, playful and when we say experimental, I think we mean his engagement with language and what words do and rhythm and, and rules, you know, for how certain kind of poetry takes form. Um, I didn't always understand until I did the kind of deep dive how not only funny the work is and smart that it is but I didn't realize that there were there was isolation there was sadness there was other like more intent in, in, more intense I never saw the depth of the emotion that that he wrestles with in his writing or and, the social aspect and of social it, yeah. aspect and identity mirrorings of, you know, what does it mean for John's work? And you see it in the collaborations. Uh, why is he interested in detectives? What is it about the idea of a detective or, you know, the old phrase, a gumshoe or somebody who, like, takes a case and has to sort information and deal with clues and, like, just just that, like, as a coming up with a doppelganger in the form of this, you know, character, Genghis Chan, how does he do what he does? And I just, it opened up a, you know, a really different level of appreciation for not only what his mind does, but like where his heart is, and like where his other parts of him are operating. Um, so those are some other kind of thoughts on like just what the depth of the work is. It seems that sometimes very playful and very smart alecky and punning, but it also has this whole other emotional side that I think is really, really important and unique relationship with language. Who are you to mix up languages? You say in one of your poems, John. Can you speak about your relationship with language? Well, I grew up in a house where two languages were spoken. My mother and father spoke uh, 
a particular dialect of Chinese. It's uh, known as Shanghaiese. It's spoken mostly around the city of Shanghai. And uh, I quickly figured out I mean, from experience, my parents would go to a Chinese restaurant, which were mostly Cantonese and uh, well, all over, but at that point in Boston. And they couldn't speak Cantonese, so they would write everything down. So here I was already aware that Chinese wasn't a, like someone said, oh, do you speak Chinese? It's like, well, what does that mean? There's, I already know there's two languages, and my mother spoke Mandarin and would say to me, well, but your dad doesn't speak Mandarin. Hmm. You know, so it's already then Chinese is three languages. And I'm like, huh? You know, I'm like five, six, seven years old. And they spoke English, and my mother... I uh, grew up in a very uh, educated, uh, wealthy family in China, so she had learned uh, French. So then she would try and teach me French, you know, just a little bit as a child. So then I'm ready, you know, what language do I speak, right? So I would hear English, but I would it would be distorted to me as a child in some way. Uh, because I was aware of all these other languages. So I thought, well, how could I, you know, and even now I can, what does it mean? What's one language? So when I say mix up languages, I just mean there is no pure language. Language is also, each language is made up of other languages. English takes words from lots of different other, you know, deja vu. That's not an English word. It comes from another language, you know, things like that. So that's sort of what I mean. And then even there's slang, and then there's different, each culture, each society in America has their own slang or their own phrasing that another part of America might not even understand. So I was always aware that language is this mutating, multiple, multi-headed creature um, and even the notion, oh, you should you should speak English in America. What does that mean, right? I mean, there's parts of America like I've been in certain cities in America where the accent was so uh, different than what I I could barely understand. I think this man's speaking English to me, but I don't understand what he's saying. You know, so what does that mean, right? So what is language in that sense of the word? I guess. Wittgenstein says the limits of my language are the limits it's of my, my world. world yeah. Right, yeah. and I'm and I'm a, I read a lot of Wittgenstein at a certain point and thought a lot about him, and thought that he had a more playful notion than I think people realize, you know, and that he did make us conscious of what language could do or not do, and I think that's important. I mean, I'm such a a friend of mine, in Ar I went to Ireland, and he said, do you want to see where Wittgenstein stayed in Ireland in this little cottage? And I made him drive me way up north. To this. And it's, of course, a nondistinct little cottage in a nondistinct little town. But there I was standing in front of a building going to my friend, take photographs. Ah, <laughs> I was going to say, did you take photographs? Yes, I yeah. did. And I, and I thought, no, I don't know what this means unless I explain it, you know, in the photograph yeah. where I'm standing. And pilgrimage. Yeah, it was a pilgrimage, yeah. definitely. Do you translate? Well, I've tried to translate just using a dictionary to make myself learn how to translate, but I'm not really, I would not consider myself a translator. 
So I've done it. I've, I've done maybe from Spanish and French, but I would not publish them. They were just exercises for me to learn something more about how a poem works or about how another a poem in another language works. Oh, translation is a wonderful learning tool, and I admire people who do it. I do too. People who publish translations. As oh, well, I love John. publishing translations. Yeah. I do. And when I was, you know, I mean, I read a lot of French poetry and translation. I learned a lot from reading translations. And also, I, also I had a student, uh, Jennifer Hayashida, who's Japanese, but um, she grew up in Sweden. And I remember telling, I said, oh, these, you know, speak Swedish? Or she said, yes. I said, you should translate from it. I said, I think it'd be really interesting that there's a Japanese woman who can translate from Swedish. So, mm -hmm. of course, she's translated a few books. So I also often, when I meet a young poet, like quickly find out if they know another language. And I always encourage them to publish. And I told Jennifer, if you translate a book from Swedish, I'll publish it. And I did. Wow. You know, So I feel like it's important to do that. I mean, I think... Poets, from even if they don't speak the same language, but they find some mutual way to talk to each other, there's always an important communication. Well, as you said, that poets need to support each other. Right. I think that it is so difficult. So few people support poetry. Right. That it is so important that poets support each other. Oh, absolutely. I think that's really important. It's like, I mean, I think poets form their own different communities within the world. And I think those communities are important for each other. I mean, I moved to New York uh, from Boston partly because I knew there was a poetry community around the St. Mark's Poetry and I want uh, the church, the Poetry Project, and it was I knew it was a place I wanted to go and experience. I had gone there when I was in college once and I was so kind of knocked out by what I experienced there. Um, then I had to go back, you know, literally move to New York and go there. And, and that was very important to me as a young man to meet other poets my age and learn that I was not by myself in a way, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're a poet, you really do think you're by yourself. And, you're, and you're, your peers are really just the poets you read, many of whom you don't think you'll ever meet. And then suddenly you're, you know, in a community where you get to meet other people like you. And that was great. It was wonderful. And then you discover that they're just people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> shocking, <laughs> isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I have found out is that those poetry community are strikingly similar all over the world. That's true. That's How true. does that happen? I think there's a kind of shared desire for this partly it's utopian partly it's a notion that most of these communities have the, a similar idea of what freedom might mean and that ultimately whether it's why governments most governments don't like poetry and want to ignore it or stamp it out right it's the notion that freedom scares them that notion of freedom they might not the poets within the community might not agree finally what the idea of freedom is or the model, but they all have a certain shared interest at the beginning. 
and it might be freedom to write the way they please or challenge language or challenge some kind of normal, what's considered normal or acceptable, but that desire to challenge, I think, is frightening to people. What do you think? Well, I, I was telling John just as we walked into this building about how you established your own community here when you moved. We're putting up a poster yeah. and creating a poetry I didn't know club. Anybody, right? <laughs> and that act, which I really <clears throat> I've told many people that there was such a smart way to kind of test the water of who is here and that the people who showed up to that first meeting kind of was were the bridge to the poetry community and writer community that subsequently became not only friends but people that you championed and that you published through your endeavors. So I think that the need for community is everywhere. And I think what John just said about freedom is the whole point, which is, and it's deep in the spirit of collaboration, which is freedom to not know what you're doing, freedom to play with somebody and see where it leads without any particular agenda other than being in the moment. Um, to relinquish control. Right. Yeah. I don't think that real art could happen unless one is willing to relinquish control. Right. Right. It's not authoritarian. Being an artist is the opposite of that. It's the it's the not knowing what you're doing and trying to, and believing in it at the same time, and willing to let language or whatever material you're using to lead you somewhere where you don't even know what it'll be and, and willing to go there and say, okay, let's see where it takes me, you know. Because then a re not a revelation that's socially acceptable, but a kind of, oh, this is what language can do or this is what paint can do or this is what sounds can do. I mean, that's... Wonderful. There is an element of being willing to waste time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to. Which is an anti capitalist, right? All I time know. is about production. Yeah. And here you are, what are you doing? You know, I'm just fiddling around, you know, with words. And I think it's Auden who said something like if you write poetry when you're 40, you must mean it. You know, that's like. What is it to be a person sitting alone in a room for years writing, doing this thing that, you know, like it's not social. It's basically almost antisocial. Revolutionary. Right. And it's like, okay, what are you doing, right? And you're not producing anything. You're not making something useful that can make money. You know, it's not a hamburger or whatever it is that, capitalist need. Yeah. I'm reading a, po a, a poetry book right now by poet Paul Hostovsky. And uh, I read his bio at the end and the last sentence, it's a, it's a bio that is humorous. And the last sentence is basically that his wife always tells him, tells him that you never want to do anything and all you care about is your stupid Clever poems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been told that by a number of people <laughs> <Right>. in my life. <laughs>
So I would love to hear several poems now. Okay. Whatever you want to share with us, John. Okay. That was a more recent book, I guess. This is called Genghis Jan on drums. And, uh, so I think when I turned 67 or 68, I started writing a poem around or after my birthday. It turned out that I would write more than one. So this is after I turned 68. I find distasteful ways to use the words enduring and hopeful. I begin stockpiling my daily doses of radiation in an abandoned dollhouse. I order crystals from mail-order spiritual specialists and bury them in the front yard. I start telling my neighbors that I'm interested in marrying an older mermaid. I ask a co-worker if it's unsanitary to sneeze into my unwashed armpits. I confess to the druggist that the condoms are for my besotted dog. I tell the taxi driver that I was lucky to have escaped from the morgue. I shrug my shoulders and pretend that I don't know what you're saying. I ask people if they've seen any strange pedestrians wandering around dazed. I carry a toy phone under my arm and talk into it whenever I go outside. I once told my psychiatrist that I speak gibberish in four different languages. I pretend that I'm a poet interested in discarded library books and obscure rhymes. I always sign the guestbook with three X's because growing old is pornographic. And then, uh, probably should explain this poem a little bit. During COVID, um, during, it was, you know, the Chinese got kind of vilified by various people, including people in the government. And there were a lot of, um, and we were all stuck in our own house. So a lot of uh, threads were started on the internet about Asians and particularly about the Chinese and some of them are quite horrible but being in my house stuck I started to follow them and um, so pinyin is the way Chinese is the sound of it's translated into English and in my head I heard you know pinyin and then I heard opinion as an opinions opinions about people and uh, so I wrote what I call opinion sonnets and this is Opinion Sonnet 13, don't blame bat soup for the Wuhan virus. And I just have one other thing to say about the series is you don't, you are not sure who's speaking. It's not the poet, it's somebody, but I, you don't know. I'm not saying who it is. You have to figure it out. And it might not just be one person in, in, in any poem. They don't just gobble down four-legged and two-legged creatures. They slurp slime-depositing life forms residing on pond bottoms. They bury their eggs in dirt dug up from children's graveyards. They make broth from dumplings for dumpling soup from bones of rabid dogs. They scrape donkey hides and turn the piles of pickings into youth jelly. They rub bird droppings into dark crevices in pursuit of yellow beauty. They refuse to change their names to soft letters that roll off the tongue. They hide among them that harbor 
They hide others among them that harbor torrents of bad and ugly feelings. They claim their ancestors were inventors when they were farmers crouching in mud. They concoct histories so fantastical that not even small children believe them. They invented fireworks, noodles, and kung fu, which hardly adds up to a civilization. They openly sneeze and snicker about it and scatter like mice. They are nothing more than scribbled names on the flyleaf of a tattered book. They make good sneakers, but they're sneakier than snakes. And then this one, uh, a lot, uh, so I was also responding at various points to the fact that when this happens, it happened in Iowa recently, where a school, some somebody at a school shoots a lot of children, and the politicians always seem to say the same things, which is, you know, my, our hearts go out to you, and and it's a way that you hear people degrade language. And I was interested in who degrades language and how it's degraded. So I would take something that a politician usually said, and then I would re only use the words in that statement to kind of see what to expose something about it, I suppose, would be. So this is called the President's Second Telegram. And it comes from something the president on May 18, 2018 said. Unfortunately, early reports of school not looking good. Unfortunately, this loss of decades has been going on too long. We're with you forever in the sadness school. We're affected by this absolutely terrible heartbreak hour. We send our love to everyone affected by our country. We send the loss of life, our horrific, deadly forever. We grieve for years of heartbreak in this tragic attack. Oh, after I turned 71, from Laura Mullen. So I misheard what Laura Mullen said to me. She was talking about my turning older poems, and I misheard her. Uh, I heard. I thought she said I should try and write a poem about this without any images, and I think that's absolutely not what she was saying. But I thought, so I told her later that I wrote this poem based on what I heard, and she went, "That's not what I said." But I thought it was okay that I misheard her. After I turned seventy-one, for Laura Mullen, I did not expect to see myself standing before a mirror. I look like someone I would never want to meet. I wonder if I've made a mistake without knowing it. I'm sure the word disaster does not tell the whole story. I know there's room for improvement, but I decide to skip over that part. I realize this passport is the last one that will be issued to me. I begin to think the joke is not only on me. I can walk in any direction and still end up in the wrong place. I stop trying to make a list of words I will never use again. I decide making sense is no longer an acceptable form of lying. I think it's prudent to let others do the counting. I often tell strangers that I might start vomiting when the seasons begin to change. I agree that reincarnation is a scam perpetuated by life insurance companies. I liked it when the cab driver called me a young man 
and gave him a smaller tip. So I'll read one more. So I'm also interested in the form called the Pantoum, which is a form where every line is repeated twice in a specific order. And I guess this is also about getting older. It's based on a conversation I had with the painter Peter Saul, uh, who I did a collaboration with that's in the exhibition, so I thought I would read this. It's called The Painter's Thoughts, number six. I was searching my brain for some unexpected subject matter. I'm 86 and in grave danger of appearing elderly and demented. Unless you can come up with some subject you haven't done even as a child. Flowers, for example. I haven't looked at them, much less painted them. I'm 86 and in grave danger of appearing elderly and demented. I'm avoiding the reality that in a mere 14 years I'll be dead. Flowers, for example, I haven't looked at them, much less painted them. I got right to work. The usual careless distortions, on purpose or not. I'm avoiding the reality that in a mere 14 years I'll be dead. It turns out that flowers are just as good subjects as flying saucers. I get right to work. The usual careless distortions, on purpose or not. It doesn't matter that nobody's fooled because I am, at least artistically. It turns out that flowers are just as good subjects as flying saucers. Right now, I'm thinking of God and Superman battling it out above an American city. It doesn't matter that nobody's fooled because I am, at least artistically. Who wants to think about how much will be destroyed in a time like this? Right now, I'm thinking of God and Superman battling it out above an American city. I was searching my brain for some unexpected subject matter. Who wants to think about how much will be destroyed at a time like this, unless you can come up with some subject you haven't done, even as a child? Wow, these are lovely. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Sense of humor. It's tricky, but you are fabulous at oh, it. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I think that humor and poetry is high art. How do you do it? If you can even speak to that. I don't know how I do it. <laughs> I, I really don't. Because um, often I think what I find is funny, I'm always afraid that no one else will think it's that funny. So there is a moment where I really am out on a limb going, uh... I find this extremely funny, but maybe other people won't find it funny. I have given a reading, I will say. At one point, I read a, it was a short prose piece, of, which I thought was very, very funny, and not a single person in the room laughed for 20 minutes. And I, by the end of it, I was so unsettled and unnerved. I thought, maybe I'm crazy. So there is a moment where you don't know because most humor people, it's it has to do with surprise. Yes. And if if the person is not willing to be surprised, you're just your joke is going to fall flat or whatever. It's not a joke, but your humor. So there is that moment, and I just feel like I can't help myself. I really want to keep trying to do this, even if people don't find it funny because at least I find it funny, you know. It's the William Carlos Williams, you know, dancing naked in front of 
I'm genius of the household, which I think is a wonderful, funny line. He's up in the attic and he, his wife is out and he says that. So I, I think, but people don't, they think, oh, maybe he's just a crazy poet. Well, maybe humor and craziness go together. What about sound and music in poetry? I think that's extremely important. I think uh, a poem works as much by sound as by the meaning of the words. And um, I, I always want those two to be together. I don't, I'm not interested in just meaning or what is meaning. I don't know what it is sometimes, but I am interested in sound. So sometimes it's a, the sound of a line that I hear in my head that starts me on a poem. So well, meaning, meaning, I think, changes from read to read, but right. sound is the same. Right. Did I hear you say that this delightful sound comes on first drafts? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Not on editing that you decide. Well, that want. happens, but it, the sound is set kind of started in the first draft. Yeah. And then I try to follow the sound as much as anything else. And a poet and writer of uh, always admired is Clark Coolidge, who's a was a drummer, uh, among other things, and a, a, a man who knows more about jazz than probably 99% of the people in, in the world, writes by sound. And uh, his work, I have to say, when I was very young, I was just perplexed by his work. But, and I think this is important, so this is why I'm saying it, is I find work that's perplexing, work that I return to, but if you get it right away, then there's nothing to return to. But if you go, what's going on, then you might want to return to it over and over. And I would have to say that Clark Coolidge is a poet that I've read throughout my life since I was a young man, and his work has changed a lot. But I'm always perplexed by it and interested in it. What are you working on now, these days? Uh, I'm writing a lot of prose poems, I guess, yeah. I mean, for the last few months. And um, I'm also writing, a, a, I'm starting to write a pieces based on, um, and I'm not just gonna say who they are, but based on memories of an artist or a writer I spent an afternoon with. Usually it's more than an afternoon, but it's all through this notion of something that happened in the course of an afternoon of hanging around or having a conversation or going out to dinner. Something happens in the conversation that I kind of want to reflect upon. So I've started a book of those just called Some Afternoons, I think. I don't know what it's going to be called. And I have one other book that I've worked on for six years and I hope to return to it is every movie uh, that John Ashford and I ever talked about or saw together. So, Amazing. So, so we'll see where that goes. I've got it, I've written five drafts, but I'm only starting to feel satisfied with it. Five drafts of the whole Of the, the whole, whole book. book. Wow. Well, the hardest part, I, the information was not hard. It was the tone of how I said it. <coughs> and that's what I, every draft, I'm trying to get it because there's a playfulness to the art 
conversations, but it was also seriousness. Mm -hmm. And I want to figure, I, I've been trying to get just the right tone of how we talked about movies. So. And speaking of books, I know that there is another one coming up. Maybe Stuart will tell us about it. Well, if you're talking about the book that documents all of this uh, collaboration work, yes, it's in the it's in the it's in the works. Uh, it should be available in in March. Uh, so it's a it's a book that has images of all of the collaborations by artists, and again, some cases a single project, in other cases to reflect the multiple things John's done with certain people. <clears throat> it has um, a timeline of John's sort of life, uh, an edited timeline for sure, but a timeline of his reflecting on people he's met, things that have been important. Um, uh, an essay by me trying to wrap my arms around his activities as a poet and a critic and a collaborator. Uh, and two commissioned essays, one by Barry Schwabsky, who is a poet and editor uh, that has known and uh, been a, a peer of John's for many years who his essay tries to put John's work as a critic in the legacy of critics, uh, poet critics, and Sharon Mesmer, who's a wonderful poet, uh, who also is a, a, uses humor uh, and many, many kind of collage strategies from popular culture in her work. And so she is writing about John's work and humor. Um, so the combination of this and many reflections by the artists who John's worked with and reflections by him about those projects. So it it really felt like it needed to have this kind of documentation and series of thoughts about what collaboration means, um, what his collaborations mean. So very excited. So there's the exhibition, there's this book, the exhibit will hopefully uh, travel to a few different other uh, venues and be presented in other parts of the country in the next few in the next year or two. So it's, um, it's a lot, but it keeps being a joyful thing. And the exhibition will be at the UK Art Museum till June 1st. Till June 1st. So a nice long run and uh, uh, many opportunities for people to come. And, and when the book is out, John will come back and we'll have a celebration and a book launch and maybe some other kinds of conversations. I think more of the artists will come at that time. So very exciting stuff. And I have one last question for sure. you, John. And that is a question I, that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. What is the most important thing you teach your students if you want them to remember one thing from your class or workshop? What is it? You don't need to show me how smart you are. <laughs> don't That's... try to impress the reader. And the other thing I often say is, and it has to do with the fact about art, that if you can put any color next to any other color, can you put any word next to any other word? So those are, and then I think the third thing, yeah, those are the two things. I try to get them to kind of think somewhat differently about meaning. And also, I often quote Frank O'Hare, who said the problem I think I may be misquoting him, but he said the problem with poetry is, is it's all description. Or the problem poetry has to face is that it's description. You know, so art doesn't have to describe something. Does poetry have to describe something? 
or can he get somewhere else? And that was important for me to learn when I was young. So those would be I, three things. I don't. I can't reduce it to one. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. That was bonus for our listeners. <laughs> thank you. Oh, you're welcome. John. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's been an honor. And thank you, Stuart. My pleasure. Thanks, Katrina. <laughs>